The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Ah, there you go. Hey, well, hey, everybody. I'm John Myers. Welcome to the Winemakers. Wow. Full crew today. Brian Casey, Sam, Bart, back from Colorado. Welcome. Howdy, partner. And Morgan Twain Peterson, how you doing, man? It's been a couple years since I've seen you. What a pleasure. It's very nice to be here. I also like the the new podcasting setup. Al Fresco is uh, very very nice. Yeah, and we we do uh, drink on our podcast. Uh, you said something about yours. We had to, we had to bust into my collection of uh, of of bedrock wines because Morgan is, has been so scarred by his experiences <laughs> with podcast czar Chris Cottrell, uh, who doesn't allow drinking on his podcast because he doesn't like the sounds of like the wine slurping and the spitting so when i was uh, when i was on chris's podcast the first thing he did when he said that i just went <laughs> and like just made a bunch of sounds into the microphone for him uh how's it going morgan great if you just hear me uh just voluntarily making slurping sounds in the background i'm just trying to get them all out right now so <laughs> i'm not actually drinking anything it's just uh <laughs> just here for the slurps just here oh, for the slurps. Man. what a stunning day look at this it is it is beautiful I mean, and there's, it's going to be hot this week, but at least it's like following the normal sort of growing season, uh, you know, cold at night, some fog marine layer coming in and it gets hot, but it's only for a few hours during the day. It's not like the, the stifling heat that uh, we have gotten used to the last that couple we, years. That we sent north this week. I know. <laughs> sent, sent north to Oregon. Sent oh, to yeah. Oregon. What the hell is going on with that, Sam? Yeah. I mean, that's scary. Um, what is going on with that is um, the effects of climate change changing our weather patterns and you know making it was you know last year five five years ago it was making you know st Helena into phoenix now we're making seattle into phoenix i mean that's uh, portland is a hundred and you know i had a friend who sent me a photo of his thermometer outside in the shade on his deck in portland and it was 120 degrees record highs was he still wearing a trench coat that's death valley (laughs) yeah Yeah, you know it's it's when it's that hot, your solar oven heats your vegan food so well. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm just not sure if all the Cascadian cuisine is ready is ready for this type of heat. Um, but it, it's true. We had some people in the tasting room who are from Oregon, and they said that they were going to go out to their beach house, but they didn't have air conditioning there, and it was going to be 100 degrees at the beach. It was going to be 109 in Portland, and they're staying in Portland because they had air conditioning, oh. which is just like, yeah, those are not great decisions to have to be making. And I think record highs in uh, Montana yeah, uh, they, this year is way up yeah, there. So it's uh, – yeah, Los Angeles is getting crazy. And there's a jet pattern going up and around, so it's it's just keeping this. Yeah, yeah, no, it it's is. these these ridges of high pressure that, um, yeah, that definitely can create some lingering heat. Well, it's supposed to be like low 80s for the rest of the week here. Oh, it's, it's going to be perfect. It's yeah. great here. Yeah, it's funny how we we list we say that like that's 
not a, a bad thing. Like it's kind of a rare thing that for us the past few years, all right? This is a cooler year um, overall. Is that correct? You weather? I mean, you vineyard guys? No, because I mean we've had some heat, um, but I mean it's it's I mean it's we haven't had the heat events like we did last year. Um, but you know it's crazy because 2019. Remember we got three inches of rain on uh, you know May 26th. And it uh, wasn't that when we were um, we were all huddled in under the overhangs of Viance Winery because <laughs> true. whenever Sonoma Valley Vintners scheduled that signature Sonoma Valley event, yeah. guaranteed a weekend of rain. So we actually maybe the new executive director is probably probably not listening, but if she was, <laughs> we could use one of those <laughs> any day now. Yeah, exactly. Schedule an event. Please. No, I, I remember that because that was going to be our original wedding date for Kate and I. And then my dad was like scheduled. He like had some event that he had scheduled like a year and a half in advance, and so like he had to go do it. So we rescheduled to June first, and wow. thank goodness we did because we would have been getting blown. I mean, that was a really blustery. We were getting blown sideways up there. So and it wasn't just the normal afternoon uh, anibus uh, out there. So. <laughs> um, no, it's. Uh, I think that this year's been pretty reasonable, but of course, um, you know, it's been a very dry year too. So, like, that's you know, um, mild mild heat is good because canopies are kind of hanging on uh, by a thread right now. You know, if you look at the pattern of drought, just last year compared to this year, it's like twenty times bigger. Uh, it's the entire western half of the United States yes. from Colorado well, I, I, over. I think one of the things we wanted to talk to you about, Morgan, was was drought and you know what you guys are doing at bedrock but let's start at evangelo and and let everybody know if you don't mind what's going on out there yeah i mean so i mean that that area out and this is and let's for not everybody knows exactly where evangelo is so let's let's you know the brief evangel the morgan brief evangelo (laughs) uh and then and then what's happening out there right now evangelo is in antioch Okay, there we go. Um, no, it's in uh, Greece. It, yeah, it's uh, on the. It's in Contra Costa County, and it's on the um, basically where the confluence of the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers are, where they come into the Delta. The main thing about Evangelo is one, it's planted on beach sand. It's forty foot banks of sand, um, own rooted vines. But the major thing out there is not just the winds coming through the coastal range, but the fact that it lies in the rain shadow of Mount Diablo. So, in normal years, we're looking at eight to ten inches of rain. So about a third to a quarter of what we typically get up here um this year uh we got less than two inches of rain out there um and that is after year where we got less than three inches of rain the previous winter so um it's just very very dry and the roots go very deep on those vines because there's no bedrock there's no clay pan there's none of that stuff but um the the stress is real (laughs) so when when you say the rain shadow of mount diablo you, you lie, the vineyard lies to the west of Mount Diablo? Lies to the east of Mount Diablo. Lie, so lie. basically the clouds come in over like Lafayette right. and um, Concord in that area. And they basically hit Mount Diablo and Mount Diablo traps the clouds. Right. And so you'll have, you know, three times as much rain on the west side of Mount Diablo as you do on the east side of Mount Diablo. Yeah. See, I guess I was thinking that the, because I haven't been out there, um, the the nor- I was thinking it was on the northwest side, so I was having a hard time comprehending. The- yeah, northeast. Yeah, so you basically you. go over the pass, yeah. um, drop down into Pittsburgh, and then, and then out to the beautiful climbs of Antioch. So, <laughs> you can, I think you can kind of see where the vineyard is when you're driving. Is that the f- highway four? Yes. Um, 
and you can see like basically based on those giant power transmission lines. Yeah. Um, you know, you can kind of you can't really see the vineyard from the highway, but you can see kind of where it is. Yeah, and if you take four, you can really see the vineyard if you take um, 160 off of four as you're going north towards Rio Vista, and then you look down to your left as you're going up over the bridge, and there's a bunch of old vineyards down there, and Evangelo is one of the one of those guys there. But what we've seen out there is really interesting is that. Um, and this is what we've seen at a number of different places, um, not just in Contra Costa County, but it's actually like the vines that are in the swales that are typically the super, super high vigor vines that are suffering the most this year. So like in areas where we're usually just beating back mildew and shoot thinning like mad and um, everything, like we've got like six inch shoots and we're dropping all the crop on the fruit because we're on the vines because we're literally concerned the vines are like about to die, um, which is really is concerning. Because Have you ever they, seen that before? I've never seen that before. Um, I, I talked to a couple um, older old timers out there, and you know they they've seen similar things in previous droughts. But I also think that people sort of have paid less attention. Um, so it's but it's crazy. It's almost as if the vines are accustomed to having more water, and now that they don't have the water, their stress reaction is even higher um, than if you know then vines that are higher up on you know on knolls and are kind of used to having uh, less water available to so, them I mean, that was my question do you think it's because those vines that in those don't have the root depth that the ones had to dig a little deeper so and, and eventually it was all dry farmed right There's it's no, all dry farmed no yeah we don't have any irrigation out there um yeah so i think that it might be rooting depth and then i think the other thing that you know in sand Sand's wonderful because you don't have phylloxera, but you do have nematodes. And um, so I wait, think wait, that... Wait, sorry. I don't know what that is. What? So nematodes are another soil-borne pathogen, things like root knot nematode, and there's a whole bunch of them, but basically they feed on roots as well. And so when you're in sandy soils, uh, you typically are high silica content soils. You don't have to worry about phylloxera, but you do have to worry about nematodes. And so... Worse than in normal soil? Uh, yeah, I mean, you have no, you can have nematodes in any soil for the most part, but they really do thrive in sandy soils. Right. Um, and so the, um, so what we're seeing is I think that there's a lot of nematode pressure and they're kind of taking advantage of these sort of enfeebled vines. So not only are the roots more shallow, nematodes tend to live in the top 10 to 12 inches of the, um, of the soil. Um, and as a result, I think they're kind of going to town on the vine. So it's kind of like a, you know, a bunch of different forces going at it. I mean, it's the same way that like, um, you know, look, Will finally removed that um, Cabernet that was on AXR1 at Old Hill Ranch. And, you know, that had survived brilliantly, even though it was definitely had phylloxera, um, but it was really like drought just kind of heightened stress reactions right. to everything. So I think that that hastened uh, the demise of, of that block. Um, so it just kind of like kicks, it's like a, it's a booster for whatever is, uh, my, whatever ailments you're Yeah. It's going to take advantage of the situation. Yeah, seriously. Exactly. No matter what. And I'm sure a lot is going to come at it over this year. I know. Cause so I've heard different numbers in the last month. I've heard first, I heard someone told me it was the worst drought in 50 years. And then I heard, Oh, if you take out one year, it was 90 years. And then someone's... someone's I've heard thousands. So that's what yeah. happened. The other day, someone told me 1,200. It's the worst drought in 1,200 years. Yeah. I don't know where uh, it's coming uh, they're from. They're counting rings yeah. on trees that have been uh, felled. And it is. It's like they're saying this is not good. And, and it's thousands of years. Yeah, seriously. I, apocalyptic. I I, yeah. yeah. I think the idea is that, yeah, you can look at basically cambium layers throughout the year and the amount of growth sort of tells you a story of how much you know uh water availability was uh there for for whatever the plant 
plant was. And in non-Morgan speak, when you cut a tree in half, Brian, <laughs> and there's rings on it, the big rings are good years, the narrow rings are, are drought years, yeah. and the, like really, really narrow years are when when there's no water at all, and this would be... 2021 is going to be a pretty very, narrow... Very narrow <laughs> ring. <laughs> if any at all. Like, if you don't look hard, you might miss it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, but, you know, it's it's been really interesting to see how vines react. I mean, we work with a lot of old vineyards all over the state, so it's been really interesting to kind of see different reactions also across different varieties. Like there's certain varieties that are much better self-regulators in the face of uh, stress. For instance, Grenache, if it's super water stress, just shatters and then like it has way less crop to write. And so in some ways that's like a self-preservation function while like Semion will just respire, respire itself to death if you allow it to. So um, it's just, you know, interesting to see those two things. And again, I mean, Zinfandel tends to handle it really well, which gives you another reason why there's so much Zinfandel oh, yeah. that's been planted in California for 150 <laughs> and, years. And survived. And survived. Those exactly. blazing fields out in the sun up north of Healdsburg. I mean... Oh yeah, like when you go through Cloverdale yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, and they just it, they just sort of weather it really, really well for the most part. But even like up in Amador County, a solo vineyard, um, and all over Amador County, you had a lot of positions that just refused to push this year. So like vines are self-aborting, like three or four different uh, spur positions. Um, they are starting to push really big suckers from the middle of the crowns, but literally we've had to go through and cut out all the positions that wouldn't push because we don't want to cut them out next winter to increase the risk of um, trunk disease. So um, it's just been like we basically had to like do secondary pruning up there. Um, and we're probably looking at about half the normal crop. Um, that we get and i mean we usually get two and a half tons per acre out of that Jesus. box so it's uh yeah denise is um yeah it's gonna be a challenging year so um but yeah so it's interesting to, and then there's certain vineyards that have handled it like a champion like nervo ranch up in alexander valley normally a pretty warm site you know you've got vines planted in 1896 on 40 degree slopes and it looks like it's 2018 there. It's like it just doesn't, they don't even look different. They're not stressed. We have evapotranspiration meters out in those fields. They're respiring like normal. Their access to water is normal. It's just like, it's really, it's really interesting. Mike, Mike Lee used to always call that the Sahara Desert of Sonoma County. <laughs> so they're, they're ready for it. Yeah. Well, in your term, a challenging year is, I hope it's not an understatement. Yeah, it's a challenging year. But at the same time, you know, I think that, you know, barring many issues i mean i think quality actually has the potential to be quite quite good crops are quite moderate it's just um but you know it is a year where you consistently think about you know i you know chris and i talk about it and jake and i talk about it all the time but if we want to talk about sort of sustainability in california we have to talk about water use yeah. and um this is a year where that really drives this point home where i think that you know tight spaced modern vineyards that require a lot of irrigation are maybe not um what we should be looking at well you you deal with the vintage vineyards so how how are they all surviving and doing pretty the, good the vintage you yeah. mean the older vineyards yeah. oh yeah i mean for the most part um our older vineyards are looking pretty pretty good i mean particularly across sonoma county like north sonoma looks taldeski nervo uh look normal sodini would look normal except it got we got some frost damage earlier this year um but, you know, even here at Bedrock, like, growth has been slow but consistent. Um, so it's not like we're dealing with really, really depleted canopies. I wouldn't say we're looking at a, a bumper crop, but, um, you know, things are things are doing all right. And I think that that kind of teaches us something about, you know, these vines that are 
on eight by eight or 10 by 10 spacing and have 64 to 100 square feet per vine uh, to access nutrients um, definitely seem to be weathering things better. I, I'd say our younger vines are the ones where um, we're seeing um, more more issues. Right. Uh, so that's what I was thinking, John, when, when you asked that question, is it might be, I mean, Morgan might have a bit of an advantage this year because he's dealing with older vines, right? With older vineyards. Yeah. And yeah. more developed root systems. And yeah. I mean, the, the really, really scary thing is if you have a younger vineyard and particularly one that's maybe on more limiting root stock, um, you know, 5C, 5B, 101.14, 3309C, like these that really require water. And then, you know, there's places in Sonoma County and up in Mendocino where they're shutting water off. Yeah. And I mean, those vines could very well die because they have very limited root zones. They've been trained on water. They're, they know where that water is coming from. So there's shallow rooted. And, um, that's a really, that's a really scary situation. Like I feel like with a lot of our old vines, um, we've got a lot more, they have a lot more access to resources in some ways, um, and can be a little bit more self self-reliant, um, which is, uh, which is good. You do a lot down Lodi, don't you? We have, we, we own a vineyard out in Lodi. We own a 10 acre vineyard out in Lodi. So what's it like down there? So Lodi is actually doing all right. Um, you know, again, sandy soils there. Um, but, you know, and also the other thing, too, is like in the realm of the the world, like Lodi has pretty abundant water because you've got all those rivers running through there. And so, like, you know, our vineyard is on the banks of the McCallum River. We have, we you know, we have, we have water at about 150 feet. But, um, you know... But again, you know, when you're farming for crop out there, though, too, my your concern would be that you have to put out a certain amount of water to sustain those those canopies and that level of crop. So, you know, if you're trying to push 10 tons per acre, eight tons per acre or something like that, that's going to require a, a fair amount of water to keep those canopies green. I mean, I don't think we're talking like almond water or <laughs> or, but, you know, yeah, which is uh, which which to me is like the one, really, really rough. But um, but still, it's pulling almond trees out all over the place right now. Yeah. Exactly, despite their profitability, but I mean, you have aquifers that are collapsing in the in the valley right now. So, yeah, it is sinking, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the ground is dropping. That's it. A couple it's, feet. It's, it's always amazing how um, the almond tree planting and replantings go. Like, yeah, it it totally rides the market and the water. I guess it's, it's those two things. Super cyclical, and then also it's crazy because I mean. For those trees it's to come up into cartel. production, yeah, it's exactly um, the Goldman Sachs cartel. Um, the they might be listening more. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Sorry, wonderful company. We won't. We, we, um, the uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's 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 challenging, but also those trees take a while to come up into development. I mean, we 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 complain about grapevines taking three to five years to come up. Um, you know, it takes takes a while for those to come up into production. Yeah, why do they tear them all out? Can't they just leave them and they go dormant? It's it's no, economics like like anything else. Um, you know, they tear them out a when they start to slow down production, or b when maintaining the property costs more than you you know the right margin of what you get out of it. Market. So right now, when if you can't just because you can't water it, doesn't mean that there aren't costs to maintaining the the orchard so it's cheaper to pull it out and you know turn it into mulch and sell it as wood chips than than it is (laughs) for my yard right hey i'm glad i don't have almond do they they barbecue with almond maybe i don't know something you could do it's hard yeah you know Um, i mean there's there's still pest pressure i mean and so i mean like that's 
Um, yeah. That's the one thing I'm very happy about living in Sonoma. I don't have to deal with grass. I mean, living in the suburbs of Chicago, you got a big freaking lawn and you put crap on it and deal and mow yeah, it. Yeah, but it rains every road. couple of days there, so yeah. the water issue isn't as much. No, yeah. but have you ever dealt with a big yard? Yeah, right. That's no the shit. deal. I just like wine. my Holy mulch, shit. man. <laughs> um, we just ripped out our front yard. We had a PG and E came out yesterday, marked all the gas lines okay. and electric lines, and are they uh, paying we, you? We no. We, well, they yes, did. they will. They okay. will. But uh, we haven't done it. But um, we had grass in the front yard and the backyard, and I can't justify it. So I'm going to keep a little bit in the backyard just because the neighbors can't see me watering in the backyard. Um, and I like having a little bit of grass, but we're putting natural grasses and, and um, uh, gravel and pavers in the front yard. And, yeah, we're, um, doing, we're doing this. I got a bunch of succulents for you if you need them. We yeah. got, well, we got a ton because they produce like crazy. And um, That's what I'm trying Maria's, to do. Yeah, Maria's <laughs> grandmother gave us some. So they're, they're like family succulents that whatever pot you put them in, within a year they've taken over that pot and started you know growing out outside of it and they're the, a lot of cactus too which are the worst to try and once they take over the pot it's like how do you get to them you almost have to split the pot in half to start cracking them out yeah yeah so we're going through that right now there was um yeah we're doing we're doing the same thing we're figuring anything that we put water on is going to be something that produces food for us and everything else is going to be pretty much a dry dry landscape um yeah. which is uh She'll be good. And also at some point it's funny when you start having kids, you have to actually like start living responsibly to like teach them responsibility, which is a a, a strange thing. So Um, (laughs) how's that going for you? (laughs) Clearly I'm adjusting. He's still, he's still very young. He's only nine months. So you guys, can I get your thoughts on that last wine? Cause I'm struggling. On the Gilles Barge Saint-Joseph, Claude de Martinet. It's got a, I, 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 are we allowed to swear on this podcast? You are. Uh, it has a shit ton of Britannomyces is what, is what, is like, what it has. So. It started off intriguing. <laughs> the bread was starting to blow off aromatically. It's still like dominating the, the palate. It just tastes like a dirty band-aid. I'd never tried a wine like that before. What really? it, to me, it was like that heavy. Yeah. yeah, to me, it smells like every once in a while we'll have a new barrel that goes off, and it's because there's additional pentosis sugars in the barrels. Um, so it'll like help feed the Brett infection. And every once in a while we'll have a barrel that goes. And to me, that smells almost like Brett that was then fed by new Oak. Um, and so you get that extra like clovey, um, like, yeah, it's like it, the eugenol, um, uh, element to it, which it is sour. Uh, it's, it's funky. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why sour beers are called sour beers from, right. from, from, from the Brits. Right, so. right. Can we talk a little bit about the uh, Zin that you, we opened here, the Monteroso from 19? The one that we uh, purloined from Sam's cellar because I didn't bring a bottle. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, what, I, but that was Chris's fault, right? It's definitely Chris's fault. He's, up, he's, he's over 300 orders on his under the wire, though, so yeah. it's, it's worth him <laughs> just sitting there watching the ticker while we have a real conversation. Well, and as these gags go, <laughs> if you have any complaints about this, email Joel at onceinfuturewines.com. <laughs> so. Uh, as he's out on the so, Jersey coast enjoying himself. Yeah, exactly. Harass him. Uh, yeah, he's on vacation right now. We can't let well, him. Well, and maybe relax. we should actually like hype the under the wire release as yeah. it is happening. It is right happening now. right and, now, and you know, it, it's not necessarily your Instagram handle, but you do have something to do with those wines, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. Fifty uh, percent, approximately, okay. <laughs> of, of something to do with those wines. Um, yeah. So, under the wire is a project we started in 2011, focusing on uh, method champenoise wines from uh, very 
specific sites around California, and it's uh, a very cool project. Um, it also is uh, extraordinarily. It takes a, has a much longer timeline than normal wines. Um, so, like, As right, I pour your 2019 Monoroso. Yeah, um, yes, we're releasing the 2013 Hirsch uh, uh, Pinot Noir. Um, uh, 2016 uh, Alder Springs Chardonnay, 2017 Brosseau, um, and 2017 Bedrock Zinfandel Method Champenoise today. Um, I wonder what I is, got on my allotment. I don't um, know the email yet. Your allotment? <laughs> His allocation. allocation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. There yeah, is. no, it's it's been going really, really well today, which we're very happy about. It's been, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can imagine, you know, there's such good uh grower champagne out there that you know selling 52 to 85 dollar bottles of california sparkling wine um you know has its a different challenge in some ways but you have to remind yourself that everybody who started anything whether you're dick graff and shalone or bob mondavi in napa you know everybody told them that they couldn't do certain things and you just got to kind of write it out sometimes so is is do you guys make under the wire every year or do you it is a yearly project. Yeah, yeah, we do. We make it every year, so we do the and, and that many skews also. We typically do four to six wines. So the the foundational vineyards are really Brosseau Vineyard, which is in Chalon, 1980, own rooted Chardonnay um, planted in limestone, and then uh, Alder Springs Chardonnay up in Laytonville. Um, but then we've also worked with Hirsch. We've worked with Wenzel Vineyard in Anderson Valley. Oh, we also make Bedrock Sparkling Zinfandel every year, which is very actually a very historic wine here in the in the valley. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then we've sort of played and teased out. And we've also worked with um, some San Giacomo fruit from the Caterina site, um, which is planted in 81, which is actually the block across from the original Ravenswood Winery when it was down on the bend oh, at Broadway. Right. So it was like the block that's that I grew up like playing in when I was, when I was a kid, which is kind of nice. So we've not released any of the San Giacomo wines yet, but um, when we do, there'll be a, an ode to Angelo because he was a very uh, key fixture in a, in a lot of our lives. So. <laughs> No, I think it's a brilliant idea for the for the local sort of grower sparkling wine because for some people they they don't understand champagne. Yeah, and so to know that there's someone that's basically handcrafting a sparkling wine here in California that yeah. they know that they can relate to in some ways, I think makes sense. Yeah, and I mean we've in California we've kind of been able to model any number of different wines based on what's gone on in the old world, whether it be great Cabernet or great Syrah or, you know, what, what have you. Um, but method champenoise, particularly like styled after like the grower champagne movement, where you're really focusing on really well farmed individual sites is um, a rarity. So, you know, even like the large houses that make very, very good wines, but they, they do it on scale. And in some ways, it, you know, sparkling wine necessitates scale because of all the specialized equipment, yeah. um, but, you know, those are all so like the fact that we're like really being like single vineyard, you know, terroir driven expressions of sparkling wine is, um, you know, just a little a little bit of a change up from what the what the norm has been here in California. Cool. And speaking of equipment, any plan? What are you guys doing? You're using um, like a crush pad facility for the sparkling. So we make uh, we vinify all the Van Claire at, at Bedrock, and then we uh, bring it over to Michael Cruz, and we make it at Cruz Wine Company. We do the secondary fermentations with him in Petaluma, um, and that's the thing is like you know he's able to. There's three or four of us that are there with him, and so we're able to consolidate and kind of use uh, a, a community. Uh, 
uh, element of scale to actually rationalize, right. you know, the gyro pallets and all the other stuff, all the big I- investment. I mean, you know, if you really wanted to talk about like even doing like a small scale method champenoise, I mean, you're in for a quarter million dollars of equipment. So, okay. I mean, it's like all between like the riddling and the, and the, and the, the wiring and the bottling and the tirade, like all that stuff. There's a bunch of specialty uh, equipment that goes along with it. So, yeah. so Chris isn't trying to push you guys to have your own facility at some point in the future. I think he would. I think we would love that in the future. But um, at this point, you know, we still have to, you know, I think sell more than a hundred cases of it. Yeah. So, a <laughs> couple hundred cases of it. So, I mean, right now we make, um, you know, we're, we're between three and four hundred cases a year of under the wire. So it's very very small scale uh, vis-a-vis the other stuff that we do. So we always joke that we have to sell about a thousand cases of old vine to rationalize every 50 cases of uh, under, under, under the wire. And that's probably generous. That's yes. probably a generous uh, exactly. ratio. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, but it's, we're really excited and we really feel like the wines have gotten much better. Um, and I mean, but the thing is, is like the, the feedback loop is so much longer. It's like you make rosé, you know, you know what you've done in four months. You know, you make uh, red wine, you know what you've done in 15 months. Like we're literally releasing 2013 Hirsch nine years, almost nine years to the day that we picked the fruit. So, I mean, like the turnaround is just, a, it's, a, it's a whole different level. It's not like cognac level, but it's, you know, it takes a while. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, um, so well, you're. I didn't get my under the wire email. I just checked my. I'm so I'm, I'm, te- I'm texting Chris right now. <laughs> Joel at Once in Future Wine. Once in Future Wine. Uh. Chris, he's coming after you, man. Yeah. And I guess I forgot I to sign up. I also haven't checked the spam folder yet, so oh, I'm a little premature. Right. But I emailed. I texted anyway. Well, I'm sure he's not stressed about anything right now. No, no, he's he's super calm and relaxed right now. He's, he's just, relaxed. just 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 chilling. So. <laughs> Um, uh, so can you talk a little bit about your, uh, block of Zinfandel and Monterosa? Yeah. So we're drinking 2019 Monterosa and, 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 you know, the makeup of it, how old it is, all that, all that good stuff. Yeah. So for, um, you know, that we're really fortunate because we work with, um, what is known as block 32 at Monterosa. But, um, you know, the longer story is I started working with, uh, Monterosa Semion in 2008 at the recommendation of Zelma Long from Simi who worked with it. Um, and at the time Gallo didn't really know what it was. Um, and, and we've, t- we've talked about this a few times, but it's like the oldest Semion on the planet, maybe, at in least North, in North America? In North America. There's probably some stuff in Australia and the Hunter that might be older that's still on its own roots. But um, you figure the oldest stuff in Bordeaux isn't as old because they have a lot of fungal disease pressure right. there. So, I mean, it's legitimately planted in 1888, and it's on Lenoir rootstock. It's actually planted before they started using St. George, um, huh. so uh, which is a bit of Estevella scrape. Um and so, like, yeah, that's it's incredible. But you know, I've been begging for Zinfandel, um, and my dad got uh, Monterosa Zinfandel from '93 to '02, prior to the sale of Ravenswood to Constellation and Martini to Gallo. Um, and in fact, he was the first person to talk Mike into selling. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chris just texted back and said, please email Joel at once in future wines and someone will take care of it. I'm glad to know that we're all on the same gag. (laughs) That was unrehearsed, unscripted there. That that is fantastic. Um, So anyways, my dad 
was the first person that um, talked Mike Martini into selling fruit from Gallo because or from Martini. Martini bought the vineyard in I think thirty six or thirty seven, um, and my dad had this great block, um, and I had been begging. Uh, Gallo to sell me from some Zin and they were after two years they relented and they uh, they're like we have just one block available and uh, lo and behold they brought me back and it's the exact same block that my dad got from 93 to 02 and was that intentional you think no, no. I don't think they had karma. any idea don't think they had yeah, yeah, just, just, yeah just some some good karma built up hopefully and uh, it's because uh, I mean there's what's cool about Monterosa is there's still a fair there's probably 50 acres of old vines that are still up there spread all over the ranch so I mean like they've got all different expositions but um, um, our block 32 is this beautiful west-facing exposition right on the mid-slope, right at about nine, 900, 1,000 feet elevation. Um, and then in 2020, we actually started working with an additional block that's on a north-facing slope that actually kind of overlooks the road up to Repre. So if you're going up to Repre and you look at, there's the old lines at the very top you see there, that's another block we're working with. It's just really cool because it's a slightly cooler expression, um, and it's even sort of more mountainous in some ways, which is really cool. Um, but Monterosa, I mean, it's, you know, it's a storied vineyard for a reason. And um, I'm just always taken by the amount of sort of perfume and natural structure. That's what I'm getting at. And what's incredible is like Monterosa, as old vineyards in Sonoma Valley go, is pretty homogeneous. Um, there's a little bit of Grand Noir and Alicante in our block. It's probably only three or four percent. And you compare that to, you know, Pagani, Old Hill or Bedrock, where you're looking at, 15, 25, 35 different interplanted varieties. Um, it's interesting. And the fact that it being like 95% Zinfandel, it still has that like natural structure. Whereas I feel like the structure at Bedrock and Old Hill really come from the Grenache, the carrying on the Petite Syrah, all of that stuff. This just has like mountain, mountain texture to me. Why do you think that happened at, at, at Monterosa where those vineyards planted around the same time were much more of the sort of like classic field blend? It's a really good question. I have, I have no actual idea. Um, and it is interesting because even like the Semion in some ways, which may have been planted a little bit before the Zinfandel is more mixed because it has a fair amount of Palomino that's yeah. interplanted in it. Um, so, and I think that there are some blocks, like I have found, like I found like a 130 year old vine Tempranillo in our, one of our blocks up at Monterosa, but it's like one vine. Um, so who knows? The other thing too is maybe vines got pulled and replanted to something else, which is actually quite common in the white Zinfandel era of the 70s and 80s. If um, vineyards were deemed to be mixed black vineyards, they get about a quarter of the price uh, than vineyards that were deemed to be Zinfandel because the last thing you want when you're making an ultra pale, slightly sweet rosé is Alicante Boucher <laughs> so, um, or, or anything that's adding adding ink. Um, so that could also be like I know like up at Teldesky, John told me that they used to have much more mixed plantings, but they literally went through and pulled out all their mixed blacks because um, they wanted to get paid more by Gallo. Um, which, I mean, so it's, you know, White Zinfandel preserved those vines for the most part being in the ground, but at the same time it kind of changed the the contours of what the what the blocks looked like. Who is it that manages that overall Monterosso, everything up there? That's Brene Royale, and she's fucking amazing. She's one of the best vineyard managers we work with, um, and she's she's on her she's on her game and that's a big property and they're farming yeah, huge i mean they're farming everything from like machine picked cabernet to like ultra hand worked you know head trained zinfandel i mean they they're they're doing you know wettable sulfur via helicopter right now right. so they, they don't get drones, through and, right yeah they've got um they actually these ones are actually these ones are actually um 
uh, manned. Um, but it's oh, helicopters. My they, yeah. they wake my dad up because we're we're like a ridge over from Monterosso, and they started about four in the morning. He's like, "Oh, Gallo's up there." <laughs> spraying with the helicopter last night. I'm like, okay, Dad, well, you're going to wake up in an hour anyway, so it's not like it really matters that much. I was going to say, how many people do you think your dad's woken up in his oh. life? So, so. <laughs> Just desserts, without question. Yeah, so. It's called right to farm, Phil. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but I mean, it's 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 an incredibly impressive operation. It's very storied, isn't it? It is, I mean, and I will say, such history. And I will say, it's really fashionable and easy to, um, you know, poo-poo uh, companies like Gallo, and there's sometimes good reason for it. But like, you know, when Martini had that vineyard, if you think about the cash outlay that's required to farm, you know, 200 acres on the side of a mountain, I mean, you're looking at like millions of dollars a year. Like, there is deferred maintenance up there. The roads are really scary. Like, there's parts of the vineyard that were getting unpassable, and like. You know, the the vineyard was gradually falling into decay. And um, to Gallo's credit, they've thrown a ton of resources at that vineyard. And it's in really, really well, good Well, and they shape. have them. You know, it's good. They, and they, have they can them, do it. And they also, I mean... It, they tend there tends to be a pattern um, of them sort of like running through younger vineyard managers. Like there had been a few that had run through there, and also to their credit, um, you know, I think Bernays been up there now for six or seven years. I mean, so it's been like there. There's actually kind of some um, consistency there, which is great. Uh, our our vineyard manager Diane Kenworthy always says that she feels like it takes about a decade for a vineyard to teach you how to farm it. Um, and that's a great, uh, great comment. And, and, really. That's a t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Um, and I and I so I always kind of think about that, particularly with something that has so many aspects, exposures, varieties, trellis types, all that type of stuff that they have up at up well, at Monterey. has so. been on the podcast before, and she talks about some of the guys that she's working with up there that have been there thirty yes. years. So yeah. she was, it was, it was made clear to her from day one that you know some of the things that she was thinking about doing maybe weren't good ideas, and maybe you should take a little time and see. She What's was she was smart enough to listen to yeah. Dionisio and some and the old the old guard guys that are up there, which I think is also something you know. Obviously, you know we've all done silly things in our youth, and sometimes you can have a, an abundance of confidence, and it doesn't necessarily serve you well. Like, so, like making sparkling Zinfandel from <laughs> old vines in the middle of Sonoma. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Which we did initially just to torture my father. Right. Um, I, mean, is, so. I think it worked. <laughs> it, 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 he's now one of our biggest uh fans but the first time he saw it yeah the uh the the first time he saw bedrock old vine zinfandel then claire on the side of the tank he's just like what 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 are you doing um but it turned out so and historically sparkling zinfandel has a long history here in the valley i mean our pot of heresy made uh one of the original great sparkling method champenoise wines in california he worked at divinoge in champagne for two years before coming back over here and it was called eclipse extra dry um and when asked what his favorite variety was for it, he said Zinfandel. It was typically 65 to 75% Zinfandel. And he specified Sonoma Valley Zinfandel specifically from like red soils and on the mountains. Um, so, which is kind of so, so cool. Does mean there's a Monterosa under the wire coming in our future? <laughs> yeah. I have teased the idea. Um, <laughs> the problem is Monterosa is pretty expensive fruit to begin with. And then uh, when you make... Make a $120 bottle of California yeah, sparkling wine. <laughs> sparkling Zinfandel. White Zinfandel. White Zinfandel. White Zinfandel. $120 bottle of white Zinfandel. <laughs> I, I, every, I've, I've been told that markets are cyclical. So uh, this is this is what this is what we're, we're going for. Um, no, I, 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 I did put white Zinfandel in a can. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, Primitiva. Yeah. 
yeah, exactly. <laughs> so white primitivo. Um, the uh, yeah, no, I think it would be very cool. The ch other challenging part of sparkling wine is that when you press, you have to do these very light fractions. So like typically you get like 160 to 165 gallons per ton of juice out of a ton of grapes. Um, when you're sparkling, when you're pressing for sparkling, because you have to be very cognizant of pH and pH shifts upward, the harder you press, you really are taking, you know, 80 to a hundred gallons per ton. Oh, so that, so like almost half. Um, so 50 to 60%. So just take your fruit price and essentially double it. Um, and that's what you're actually looking at for your actual wow. bottle price. So like when we're making Hirsch. Can you do anything with the hard press of that though? I mean, yeah. can you like yeah, so, save it for rosé or something? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's also like so, and I want to say underripe, but so just low low bricks, right? I mean, what can you really do with that juice? Yeah, we're picking at 18 and a half or 19. We've definitely... Um, teased it into blends before and i mean we can put it into shebang and stuff like that because it's you know it's a barrel here and a barrel there um but it's uh it's definitely you know it, it's an, an extra level of uh uh cost on making sparkling wine <laughs> hate when that happens that's why you don't drink on your podcast <laughs> right <laughs> um Sam just spit wine back up into his eye. Um, so. Nose. Nose. <laughs> um, so, shared spit cup. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, vaccination. Long for. Oh, you're not using that. Okay. That was all my that, Thank God. Yeah. Okay. Vaccinations are a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay, um, Morgan, can you speak a little bit about y your new vineyard project that Chewy's planting for you? Oh yeah, um, I've always I used to always love that vineyard up there. Yeah, the, um, the Merlot that came from it. Yeah, but it's a great location. I've been buying my bike a few times, and it's really looking nice. Yeah, so we're we're really excited. So I mean, this all stems from the fact that um, there's a whole generation of Syrah vineyards that are dying in California due to Syrah decline, um, particularly up here on the North Coast. Um, and so like a lot of vineyards planted between like 98 and 05 have gradually are dying off at about 15% a year. So we've lost a number of really good sites. Um, and, um, so we, and we've really wanted to develop one ourselves. So, um, Chewy, uh, I think you've been lusting after that property for, I mean, years and years and years. And unfortunately the previous owners lost the houses to the 2017 fires. Um, and Chewy originally planted that for Mike, uh, Mike Lee at Kenwood. And it was a really nice Merlot site. Um, it's out off of, it's sort of like wedged between, it's like a valley between Rossi and Ubaldi and Puccini, um, sort of out in the Kenwood, uh, sort of Lawndale, uh, uh, area. Um, and what's really cool is half the ranch, which they're replanting the Cabernet and Merlot is on, you, you know, your classic, you know, Tuscan red series soils. Um, it's a lot like Rossi in that you have multiple, um, you know, multiple soil types. And then the other part that we're planting Saran is essentially just composed of massive blocks of rhyolitic uh, rock that formations. Like it's like what pink guy. white. Yeah. Um, and it's got a lot of K spar in it, which is potassium. Um, but uh, we're really excited because we're going to be able to plant, um, we're going to plant uh, Estrella River, uh, Albin selection and uh, Durrell selection, which is sort of a historic Sonoma Valley selection, which is originally from the Grampians in Australia. So it's a Shiraz selection. Of course, everything originally came from, from the Rhone. Um, so we're going to be able to have those three and we're excited because it's going to it's cooler climate but it's not ultra cold climate um and i think that there's really something to be said for you know if you're farming 
if you're putting inputs into the ground and you're farming, I think it's good to get three to four tons per acre rather than one and a half tons per acre. There's just a better return on the amount of resources that you put in. So it's the, the um, climate-wise, it's a little cooler than like Hudson, um, which is ironic to think that was it's the van. It's cooler than Hudson? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really? if you look at the, the heat accrual days, because there's more exposure to the gap. Right, because it's on the other side of Sonoma Creek, or right, and yeah. so it does draw in that Santa that Santa Rosa. Fog. Yeah, so it's like you got then, it, then yeah. it gets sucked into that little valley up there. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, yeah, so we're yeah, you know, like we're pretty excited because it's crazy to think that Hudson was the vanguard of cool climate straw. When Lee originally planted it in '93, people told him he couldn't get it ripe, and now it's like we're we're picking it at 24 on September 10th most years. So it's. Um, uh, just for for reference sake, that's Carneros. I mean, that's you know his neighbors are making sparkling, sparkling wine. Yeah. Right. So yeah, Napa Carneros. When you drive by, you have a you see an American flag, a California flag, a Texan flag, and a Mexican flag, and then a pirate flag during harvest. <laughs> um, uh, then uh, yeah, that's Hudson. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, Lee's Lee's a character. He's 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 great. Um, so yeah, so we're excited about that. And then we're also um, developing what probably will be the largest development at Bedrock in in my lifetime. We've got um, twelve acres that we're developing there on Madrone Road, um, which is. Um, you know, also quite, quite interesting fun. And we're doing that on a, you know, wider spaced, you know, wider spaced nine by seven with the intent that we'll eventually get it to dry farming, um, which is the, the ultimate hope. And that's yeah. right. And that's right there on the road. It's literally on the, on Madrone road as yeah, you're, as you're driving by. So uh, like three years, three yeah. or four years ago. Um, and we kind of did an accelerated fallow where we basically were able to grow both winter and summer cover crops, um, and doing things like nematode suppressing, uh, mustard for like biofumigation and, um, you know, doing all the tools that we had. Mustard to on purpose. Mustard on purpose. Yes, exactly. So a Wait, isn't all mustard on purpose for photos. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's the purpose of Instagram. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, it was insane that the, the stand that we got from the black mustard was, um, incredible. I mean, like at one point, Jake and Sarah, who are both, you know, five, eight, five, nine, were walking through the block. And at one point I just completely lost them because they were like, it was up over their heads, which is incredible. And you actually, you know, I've actually talked to Phil about this, but you follow the tractor on days that you're knocking that cover crop down and like your eyes are watering because there is mustard gas being put out essentially wow. that knocks down uh, soil borne pathogens, which is a real challenge at a place like Bedrock because we've had grapes in the ground since 1854 at that ranch so you know however we can um break up monoculture however we can sort of you know create a situation where we can develop young healthy grapevines you know we've got to we're, we're, we're trying trying to do it and and is this that's but that's carved into several blocks right it is so it, it was initially one huge block of cabernet on axr1 sort of back in the day when people were still planting for 24 ton truckloads to come out of vineyards um and we've basically broken the blocks down into what will be more like three to five ton fermenter sizes so definitely more small winery our winery friendly um and yeah we've got a couple blocks of sort of zinfandel with um interplanted mixed varieties in it that sort of replicates what you see in the old vines. Um, we've got Mataro, um, we've got a block of Grenache, and then we've also got uh, mixed uh, Portuguese plantings as well, which I'm really excited about. So a lot of Trigonacea now. So that's kind of your um, global warming 
yeah um, experiment yeah and we're going to be do, planting some whites as well um down at another part of the vineyard just because um you know we're looking at varieties that do well in mediterranean climates that hold acidity um and stand up well to heat and if you look at the duro it's uh, pretty extreme and those wines have incredible can have incredible perfume and finesse like in some ways tragonacea now reminds me of um, of Syrah in some ways, but it handles hot climates a lot better. It can have, it's just got this beautiful, like violet, um, fennel, like aromatics. Um, we worked with a little bit off York Creek vineyard in 2015 and, um, we're just very happy with that wine. So, um, we're, uh, yeah. So Trega Nacional, Tinta Baraka, Tinta Cow, um, you know, natural, yeah. <laughs> natural fits. Easy to say, easy to sell. Yeah, exactly. Everybody knows what, what they are <laughs> want to buy them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, okay so, so can we elaborate a little bit on, I mean, for those people who don't know, Morgan, you're a master of wine, correct? I am, yes. So it's, it's I don't know Morgan how many times we've Peterson had. MW yeah. on the podcast notes. <laughs> right. Um, what do you see as Dr. far as Dr. Like, Morgan Twain Peterson MW too? I, I, <laughs> I wish so. I do have a, a, an honorary uh, colonelship from Kentucky too, so we can throw that on that too. <laughs> so, wow, wow, Morgan! Cool, yeah, so, that one's definitely from on eating my a wall. lot of Kentucky but, fried but, chicken. My, my, yeah, I, better fried chicken than that. But it's the uh, yeah, the uh, but that's actually Colonel Sanders was actually a Kentucky colonel, not a real colonel. Um, so we, we we share that in uh, in common. Uh, so. <laughs> All right. All right. So, yes. Okay, so, so what I'm curious... It would be such a good Halloween costume for you. It would be, yeah, oh, I, I, I'd be down for it. Um, it's funny because I have the Kentucky Colonel ship framed and on my wall, but I don't think I have the MW. So... <laughs> Priorities. Priorities. So, so what do you see happening globally, like in areas like Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, yeah. or, or even around here with global warming? Like, what are the ramifications of... But especially in, in, in those other places in Europe where, you know, it's particular varietals that are grown in particular yeah. areas. And so that's going to have to change at some point, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you already see the, the reality of that in Bordeaux, where for, you know, Bordeaux, basic Bordeaux wines and Bordeaux superior wines, they've now expanded the number of varieties that you can grow. So they've included Nacional. They've included, in fact, a variety called Castay, which is historic. We actually have a little bit of it at Bedrock um, from the Gironde, but these varieties that they think are going to uh, ripen better in a warmer and shifting climate. Um, and I mean, I think you're already seeing an evolution in wine style, uh, whether it be in Germany, where, you know, the, what used to, you know, they used to struggle for ripeness and now you're seeing, you know, 14 and a half percent alcohol, gross Gavax Riesling on a pretty regular basis. And, um, I think you're seeing, uh, things in champagne. I mean, the, the, the scary part of it is the flip side of where you're starting to see, and we're already seeing this at bedrock. Um, is where you're seeing bud break earlier because of warmer winters, and then that actually increases your frost risk. And so they've had really catastrophic frosts um, in a number of regions in Europe. So like that's, you know, that that's that's sort of like on the other side of it. But you're like that's an additional thing that people have to worry about. Um, so I think that there's just going to be an evolution of styles. And I think also though, like people have an incredible capacity to, to learn and adapt and utilize technology and better understanding of how to grow things so you know if it used to be that people were trying to maximize sugar production in these marginal reason, uh, regions there's probably ways that you can grow grapes that minimizes sugar production in uh, those areas as well so I think that people will probably be leaning into stuff like that too. Well, the, you know there's so much history in Bordeaux yeah. I'm surprised that they are able to change you know I mean they're 
probably it's, a lot of. It's funny though because his Bordeaux actually it has history, but it's you know it's always been it's always been economics first there. You know, I would say like Burgundy, where you've got you know going back to like the Duke of Burgundy in 1530 yeah. or whatever. Like that's that's, a, you know, that's really really old. But like I think in some ways, Bordeaux because it is such an economic crop there is going to be probably more willing to adapt and evolve because they are most concerned about the bottom line. I think it's going to be harder in areas where you don't necessarily have that profit margin. Um, and also where you have much deep, more deeply embedded cultural practices, like all of a sudden, are you going to be able to go to, you know, uh, Alba and tell them that they shouldn't be planting Nebbiolo anymore. I mean, like, so, and, you know, or in particularly for varieties like Nebbiolo that seem like they're probably, they have very narrow windows in which they grow well and produce world-class wines. So it's sort of like, it's just going to be interesting to see how that evolution happens. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like or seem like the government's going to do, they're going to be slow to move the needle. It's just going to be naturally what kind of happens to the to yeah. the wines, right? Well, mm. and think about all the laws and regulations that have been set up to protect those denomin- those DOCs and the DOCGs right. and right. all of that stuff. So you're going to have to see some evolution and flexing there. In some ways, one of the real beauties about making wine in the new world is that you don't have to necessarily, like, you know, work under those stipulations. Um, so, I mean, even things like recommended harvest dates in Burgundy and stuff like that. You right. know, like that's a... You know that's a that's a group decision. It's not uh, an individual. It's not an edict. Yeah, <laughs> you have so, to harvest today. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's pretty. I mean it can be pretty close to that in certain areas. So, um, yeah, it's going to be. It'll be. It's going to be interesting to see. And, and then here, we, we talked a little bit about it, sort of specifically with Evangelo, but in a not just in the drought of 2021, but in a climate change world what are the added sort of pressures on old vines because we've talked a lot about you know the past when you were on and and the economic pressures on on old vines whether it's housing or yield or farming costs yeah what added sort of climate pressures are those on those those varieties or we kind of maybe talked about at the beginning of the show that you're you think that they have some resiliency but but what adds to that your list when you think about those vineyards now i mean i it, honestly i think the old by vineyards are teaching us a lot about how we should be planting vineyards in california um because i think that we're seeing them respond a lot better uh in the face of these really extreme conditions and you know the way that they were interplanted with multiple varieties that was an insurance policy when they were planted in the 1880s because they you know there's there's crop failures and also like you know the beautiful thing about having petite strong tempranillo in your vineyard is that it ripens early so if it's a really cold year you're going to have something that's producing sugar but the reason why you also have mataro in your vineyard is because it's super late ripening too so if it's a really hot year you've sort of got that um, in it as well so i think that sort of building heterogeneity into um, our vineyards is really important and then i also think that the widely space the wide spacing is really important because it basically means you can be um, a little less um, aggressive with watering to basically keep your vines alive. I mean, our our water needs, it's, it's pretty crazy because we've got blocks on our ranch that were developed in the 1990s and 2000s. They're put up on Geneva Double Curtain, and they are just like, they, they demand water. They're these huge vines with tons of carbohydrate. And then we've got these old vines that are 
130 years old on eight by eight spacing and 10 by 10 spacing. Um, and they require like a 10th of the water that, huh. you know, those, those other bigger vines do. And I think that that's, you know, in California, if we want to talk about, you know, quote unquote sustainability, I mean, I think you have to look at what resources are most precious and, um, water is, water, 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 water. water is a very precious resource. And it always has been, you know, do you um, remember the times we sat here and talked about, we were in the middle of an atmospheric river. Mm-hmm. The the rains were so fucking yeah. heavy. Well, and, that's, <laughs> and that's kind of part of it too, John, because our, you know, you look at Paso this year, they had, they got 12 inches of rain in Paso. It in, came in one 24 hour atmospheric say 24 river. Hour. Where, you know, you ask a farmer, any farmer, would you want 12 inches of rain that came in a half an inch a week for, you know, for 12, no, I guess it doesn't, an so, inch a week yeah, for 12 yeah. weeks, there you go. or, you know, 12 inches in 24 hours, the obvious answer is is the, the former, right? So yeah. that's, you know, part of why, like, soil health is so important, because if you are if you have hard, dead soil, yes. and you get 12 inches of rain, and well, it's, it's all, it's, yeah. it's all going to end up in your neighbor's pond, yeah, and if you have, off. you know, soil that has some soft it's got some organic matter it's alive you have a chance of soaking some of that up right so that's definitely um you know those atmospheric rivers i mean maybe there's a name for it now but when i don't remember anybody ever talking about an atmospheric river when we were kids it would rain for a week 2000 and yeah i think i started yeah it was 2010s we started talking about it a lot um yeah i mean and that's the other thing too is like the way that where we've been receiving our rain the last few years is like it was an extraordinarily dry winter until we started getting rain. So basically in the most important, in some ways, the most important time for vines in their life isn't necessarily in the spring. It's actually as they go into dormancy when they're basically uh, taking up carbohydrate and storing it in their roots. So they basically, which allows you to kind of, that allows for the next year's spring, uh, which is called fall root flush. Um, And you need water for that fall root flush to happen. And so like, I think one of the reasons why we've seen a lot of vineyards just not pushing out of a lot of spur positions this year is they weren't able to take up carbohydrate because it was so dry and they didn't have the, basically the trigger to basically get things to push. So they're pushing tons of suckers from the center of the vines where they can where they were able to store carbohydrate but they literally weren't able to get it all the way out into the buds that would normally push so we've got vineyards like amador county is just crazy you walk through you drive through there and it's just like the old zin vineyards all over the place just to have like you know 50 percent of their positions haven't pushed this year um, and that I'm sure is because we had an extraordinarily dry October, November, and December. That's amazing. Yeah, it really um, is. It's also kind of amazing that vines can self-regulate like that. Have you but, ever seen it before like that? I've never seen it that bad, that badly. We've seen um, we've seen similar things when we've had some hard frosts um, out in in Lodi, where you get some winter kill and some other stuff, and that can be associated with not having enough phloem flow in the plant. That basically the vascular systems freeze. Um, uh, and, and the positions will, some positions will die there. Um, but, uh, it's definitely the most extreme I've seen it in, in particularly in Amador County, but we, we've seen it all over the place. And also Pinot Noir out on the coast apparently has had a lot of issues with it as well. Um, so can we advance to next year if it doesn't change, what are you going to do? How, how will you handle that? It's a really good question. Grow dope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. so it's, All right, uh, fine with me. It's 
And what does Will Buckland say? Farming is the profession of optimism. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I mean, what what we do is what we continue to do. I mean, what we've learned, as Sam was talking about, is like soil health is absolutely critical and will buy you is also sort of your insurance policy. So, you know, a 1% increase in organic matter increases your water holding soil capacity by 14 to 18,000 gallons per acre. Um, so if you think That's about amazing. that, one inch of one. water is 26,000 gallons per acre. So basically, if you can increase your, you know, if you can increase your water, your organic content by one, two, or three percent, you've literally are able to Take hold two Take or three yeah. inches of rain. Um, which could make all the difference in years like this. So that's the reason why growing cover crops is so important. That's the reason why we're starting to do uh, biochar amendments, which basically can stabilize carbon in the soil and also um, help feed all the um, all the cover crop and all the in the soil microbiome. Um, so it's just like that's becoming more and more critical um, in terms of just you know you know floor practices is very important. So crimping, um, crimping, yeah, yeah, crimping's on on the way up. It ain't easy. Crimping ain't easy yet, but uh, it's on it's on the growth. Are you doing more of it than you have in the past, or yeah. is it real site specific? It's very site specific. Um, it works really, really well on some sites, and it doesn't work as well in others. But, Can you explain um, that? Yeah. So what crimping is is basically when you grow your cover crops um, at. It seems so easy. It seems so easy. <laughs> um, Until you have a, a rocky vineyard, just throwing that thing all over the place yeah exactly just, just, breaking, just breaking seed drills and uh and and everything um the what it, it's actually a really fascinating thing so basically it was developed for row crops by the rodale institute out in pennsylvania um yeah we bought we bought ours through a amish company through a mennonite uh dealer in uh Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> in eastern pennsylvania i like it <laughs> snail mail only yeah exactly <laughs> so arrived on the back of a horse-drawn buggy um the uh um yeah, so I mean, it's it's a pretty fascinating thing. So basically, you know, at the end of the year, you've you've grown your cover crops, and you basically have um, a couple different options of how you how you terminate them. One is that you can mow them. The other one is that you can mow and then disc them into the ground. Um, what we've started to do. Um, at certain vineyards is basically use this thing called a roller crimper, which basically is a big roller that has Chevron um, shaped blades on it. And basically it crimps the um, cover crop down to the soil as a mat. And we grow specific cover crops uh, for this use. So we usually tend to grow a lot of fibrous plants like rye and stuff like that, um, that crimp really down really well. The stalks like are break yeah, so they're, what's the no, so the stocks will actually hold up better over the course of the rest of the season to like all the UV exposure and all the other stuff. Uh, so things like fava beans can produce a lot of biomass, but they get kind really. of by, they break down really fast. Things like peas, like think about uh -huh. like you pull a pea out of the ground and how fast does it wilt? Um, right. Well, as these like really fibrous stocks can go down, and what that does is it means that you're keeping all those roots from those plants in the ground. So that's organic matter in and of itself. You crimp it down and you create this thatch on top of the soil so that also prevents uh direct sunlight on the soil which is really good for soil microbiome and soil health and things like earthworms and because you're not you know messing up their um you know the, the the little micro ecosystems um and then on top of that the best enemy of weeds is is 
shade. So like particularly out in Lodi where we use this, I posted on my Instagram the other day, like we had one row, every other row we crimped and every other row we didn't. And in the rows that we crimped, we have like a little prickly lettuce poking through, but other than that, nothing. In the rows that were disked, we have Johnson grass, we have Russian thistle, we have Bermuda grass, we have like, uh, like we have like the murderer's row of every, every noxious weed that, <laughs> that there is. Um, and the crimping is literally just put that to use and that's not using herbicide that's just using and out there we grew uh jake was really smart and our viticulturist and uh, grew merced rye which was developed for soils in the valley so we had this incredible stand of merced rye and rye is also allelopathic which means that it inhibits the growth of things around it um and so basically huh. we we crimped that down and it's been an incredibly effective tool and like up at nervo ranch which we all goes to shit you just make whiskey Exactly. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> keep running that wa- rye. Right. right yeah, exactly. Just yeah, making making some. Uh, yeah. Rye's where Ergot came from too, and that's uh, the oh, right. start of LSD. Things yeah, really absolutely. go to shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just start to just just start LSD. Chewing, <laughs> chewing chewing on the end of uh, chewing on the yeah. end of some, some, end of the rye. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and what's it's incredible because at Nervo. Uh, where we've been doing this now for six or seven years, we had soil tests that came back with literally 0% organic matter, and we're up to almost 4% organic matter. So we've gone from a vineyard that needed to be irrigated almost every single week to a vineyard that might need to be irrigated once a year. That's crazy. Uh, um, that's so, that's re- remarkable. So, which is really re- remarkable. Yeah, it's, an, it's, an, it's really cool. It's great where it works. Uh, it's got challenges, as with all non-till. Um, you know, voles, gophers, love it. You know, there's all sorts of other, you know, like mm. like with everything, there's, um, you know, it, it pluses and minuses, but in the areas where it works, it is a really um, potent tool. Um, more vineyard cats. I heard, a, I heard a rumor that a very high-end uh, vineyard in Napa that uh, really likes uh, non-till was considering, like, doing beneficial snake releases. <laughs> So like just doing beneficial like king and gopher snake releases into into their vineyards, and I was just like, it's kind of brilliant, but I don't I don't but want to sample those vineyards. Once they eat them all in that vineyard, then they're moving on just somewhere. Wait else. till the influencers show up and for that. One. Well, yeah, exactly. So yeah, exactly. That's what you that that's that's what Will should do in that field where he's concerned yes, about exactly. all the Instagram models. Uh, so <laughs> just snakes. Beneficial rattlesnakes. Earlier this morning, <laughs> baby rattlesnakes can't hear him. Bart, do you get uh, rattlesnakes up at your place? He's raising rattlesnakes in his new water tower to release. Him. Exactly. So. Um, we have relocated three rattlesnakes this year at our place. Yeah, apparently it's uh, the drought is causing a major um, movement into civilization of a lot of yeah. a lot of rattlesnakes we, so. we have a small lawn area in the back and that's where all three of them have been found and so i think they're how do you very, how do you remove those yeah, hosted, yeah. So. how do you rehome those um shotgun throw them over the fence, <laughs> <laughs> throw them over the fence. call the yeah <laughs> call the lions shout out to the lion ranch um yeah. I read a very Shovels. funny thing, which just to me just really sums up uh, the silliness and fickleness of humanity, um, is that basically rattlesnakes were basically because people have been killing rattlesnakes when they show up. We've been selecting basically for rattlesnakes that don't rattle. So basically rattlesnakes that rattle and let you know that they're yeah. there have a higher likelihood of getting a shovel to the head. So basically we we're basically just selecting for <laughs> snakes that won't rattle. So yeah. it's like That's great. Awesome. Yeah. So no warning at all. No warning at all. Just straight just straight strike. Um, so. 
Um, you know, it's, I'll start the shout outs to uh, you guys for the Bedrock Conversations um, oh. podcast. The one you had with Jake on it, or I guess it was maybe two episodes with Jake. Uh, oh, the question and answer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, really good. You know, right. Just geeky enough. Um, but uh, for our listeners out there, if you're not already listening to Bedrock Conversations, check it out. And, and you know, Chris talks a lot on it, but um, usually when he's trying <laughs> to just only, redirect you. Yeah, it's that's it's, yeah, it, <laughs> No, Chris has done such a great job yeah. with that. He's, he's a natural. And, um, yeah, that, that Q&A podcast was very fun because we also got some really great questions from some, you know, world-renowned viticulturists that were, and so... Also from Winemakers Podcast listeners. Yeah. Shout out to them. And also, hey. there, yeah, there were a lot of a lot of Winemakers Podcast listeners out there. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it was great. And I think also you really shows the brilliance of, of Jake, because he's, uh, inc- he's not only a very good viticulturist, he also knows how to talk about very complex farming issues in a way that is generally approachable to people so it's you know understandable so which is something i could work on um so i wasn't gonna i was not gonna say anything sam was, was looking at me it with my exactly. eyes yeah so <laughs> uh, it's actually jealousy sam it's jealousy well you know i'm not like this is a new <laughs> phenomenon in the dynamic between more i mean we had these conversations on the playground at vintage country day school and yeah, Montessori, Montessori like, school so <laughs> like, Morgan, what the hell you, can you explain it i'm i'm a couple years younger anyway i'll throw that out there that, that is true <laughs> so uh, there was oh oh by the time i'm morgan's age i'll know how to talk like right, right. <laughs> you've had a this good was teacher morgan explaining to you how to put together legos like right like right. how to yeah. come in you know Tie yeah. my shoes. Dungeons White and Dragons. So. Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, we're, we're um, thank you for the shout out to the, the Bedrock Pod. And we're really excited because we've got, um, like, I think Carol Meredith's going to come on next week. And then we've got Kathy Corson lined up. So we're, we're looking forward to having some cool guests. And just like, if anything, in some ways, like, we're really realizing, particularly like the death of Jim Clendendon was a really good reminder that, like, there's like a whole number of incredible winemakers from this generation that from our parents generation that um have incredible oral histories to tell and i think that it's really important for just like what you guys are doing here is to to capture it because you know i would i would listen to a podcast with mike lee to death if one existed you know like it's um so i think that that's you know really really important um ironically we have not had my dad on yet because uh we haven't figured out how to break down uh do a Phil Joel show. Oh my God. Just put them in a room with microphones and shake, you yeah. know, and lock the door. Qu- quarter pound of dope and <laughs> let him go. So. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> no, it would be, uh, yeah, that would be, that would be something. So, um, yeah, we were trying to figure out with my dad whether we like, do we break it down by decade? Do we break it down by theme? It's going to be a, break it be down a challenge. By paragraph. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, very long paragraphs. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's 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 good. Now, there is a, a historical record element, and I've actually talked to Chris about this, and you know, he's not here. And we've made a lot of fun of him, but he, he has done a, taken that point part of it. That's something that we don't necessarily strive for, or, or even part of. We're just you know we're current and all right, fine. Yeah. We're trying to <laughs> put the historical say, Bart, record. Bart and I actually talk about that once in a while. All right, and, fine. Well, yeah. I don't listen to the show. What do I know? Right, um, so. <laughs> the the and I've talked about it before. The, the Will Buckland two-part episode yeah. is um, as far as like the history of Sonoma Valley and um, 
if you don't listen to the whole thing because it is you know three hours of podcast, it's a long, um, it's a long go. But the uh, from about the seventy minute mark to the ninety minute mark in episode two, where I went from full like I'm driving by myself, laughing like there's an audience, <laughs> to pulling up at my destination and nap because it was like a twenty minute drive right up yeah. when they were talking about the fire. Oh my and, god! And yeah. and um. You know, we all like sort of had our own little realities with our own little bubbles in the fire that were all mirrored, and we had very similar and very different. But um, so when you hear somebody else's uh, experience, and you know, this part about like Lizanne being the only smart one in the whole crowd, yeah. while they're out like trying to fight fire with buckets and shovels, she's packing, you know, the, the actual passports valuables. and valuables, <laughs> yeah. which is you know what, what Alice was doing too. Like, we're, yeah. I mean, I'm like riding twitter trying to find out where the fire is she's like okay well what things do we need to pack um so i was when that i was like fully balling sitting in the parking lot of like i think i was going on the court company or something and (laughs) i had to like like wipe the tears out of my eyes so i could get out of the car and not look like a freaking idiot so um definitely if if you're not if you're listening to this podcast and you're not listening to the bedrock conversations um i don't know what you're doing yeah the weeks that we don't get our shit together and don't put out an episode go pull a couple of layers <laughs> up and, and I appreciate you know. that. yeah the will the will one was incredible and the other thing too is like with will i mean and as you know like that podcast is based on you know over a decade of you know decades of friendship so it's also like um i think that that's what's really nice about both this and and what we can do is that there's you know, we, there's a backstory. There's a generous and rich backstory to a lot of the people that come on, and um, we like we like highlighting that. And Will is, I mean, he's a he's a very wise human being. He's a salty human being, but he's a very wise human being. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I with the email about under the wire release, it was mm-hmm. also talked about the bedrock release. Oh yeah. Can you tease those, um, to us? What's coming out? <laughs> what, what stand? Well, let's, <laughs> I know it's a large list. Let's well, talk about the highlights for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, well, the other thing too is, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much time we have, but like it's, we're going to be starting to release 2021. Right. And you know, that's, um, something that we're going to have to, that's going to bear some explanation. And, you know, we've done, the amount of resources we have thrown towards sending stuff to labs in Australia and doing all the other stuff to make sure that we're in, we feel comfortable with releasing the wines has um, been extensive. Um, but you know, and we're certainly never going to release a wine we're not 100% comfortable with. So the good news is, is like we actually have a lot more wines than I expected um, from 2020, and they're a lot better than I expected, um, which has been really um, quite nice. So um, we're going to be selling some of the first 2020s, like 2020 Old Vine is on that release, which is one of our bread and butter wines. Uh, Typically, you know, Bedrock Heritage wine will be on that. Um, And then we also have some 19s and 18s that we're working through as well. We have like uh, 2019 Eau de Lucienne, which is um, 95% uh, Mataro from Bedrock. It's our sort of homage to Red Bandol in the same way that Eau de Lulu is our homage to to Pink. Uh, The irony being that uh, Lulu doesn't drink rosé. She only drank red wine. She would drink like current vintage uh tortine like the most tannic mataro ever and just fill the glass up to the brim and it'd be like 100 degrees on a hot band all day and she'd be sitting there she lived to 103 though so i'd say the antioxidant uh power of mataro uh clearly is doing something um and uh, just for the like context and richness of that story the (laughs) odalulu is is 
your it's your Tompier. Yeah, it's our, right? our love letter to Bendel Rose, exactly named for Lulu Perrault of Domaine Tompier. Of, the, of Domaine Tompier, who is, I mean, basically like her star and Kermit Lynch's star rises yeah. at the same time and creates Rose that is like real in in America. Absolutely, she didn't drink. She didn't drink the, the, rose. the, the, the great. The great <laughs> irony is that it's actually, it's actually more Lucienne who really like developed the rosé from my understanding, and she didn't really drink much rosé. She really preferred mm. the red bendel, um, which, are, which are great. They're incredible, and, and and what's amazing about Tampier is like they were starting to do single vineyard. Uh, released wines in Bandol in the 60s. I mean, the fact that, you know, they're making La Migua and La Tortine and La Cabasau all the way back then is just like, that's a very modern phenomenon to do like the individual vineyard thing rather than just making a Bandol Rouge and a Bandol Rosé and a Bandol Blanc. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and because it is sort of our homage to Bandol, we make it very much like old school Southern, you know, Southern Rhone, um, uh, Mediterranean wine and that it's all done up in neutral 600 gallon foudre um, and uh, for how it, long so th- uh, typically 15 to 17 months um, and so basically it's just a very like primary you know wine but the the Mataro from 2019 at Bedrock it's usually more based around Evangelo uh, Mataro which is really good but the Bedrock Mataro was um, exemplary in 2019. So we made it 95% of the wine and it's 5% uh, Grenache from the 1880s plantings at Gibson Ranch up in Mendocino. Um, so very excited about that wine. Um, and then there'll be a few whites as well. well. We'll have our 2020 Cuvée Caritas, which is based around the old Semillon at Monterosso that we were talking about. Um, R.I.P. Caritas. R.I.P. Caritas. Um, she's here in spirit. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, and then so the Staves of Weidhofen, which is our uh, Sauvignon Blanc that's all done up in Stockinger, and that's so from Ubaldi. And then um, we also actually have our first, I'm not sure if it's going to be on this release or the winter, but we have our first Sauvignon Blanc from Bedrock Vineyard as well that I'm super, super stoked on. So it's uh, finished at uh, 3.01 pH. So it's got some ripper acidity. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yep. So, super yeah, excited. It's, it's bright. Um, and there'll, there'll be a few other odds and ends cool. on there. We haven't, we usually sort of taste through and figure out what we think is showing well and doing all that. Evangelo Heritage Wine will be on there. I mean, 2020, it was what we've learned uh, from the last few years, and this sort of relates to all the climate stuff is like, it's really good to be diverse. So the fact that, you know, we are done with Contra Costa harvest by like August 25th most years is very nice, you know, and the fact that we have a lot of fruit that came in that we know was completely safe before any of the fires started were, were really, really good. And then, um, so that, that, you know, that, that part's been good. And that's the reason why we continue to go farther South and we're working with like five vineyards in Santa Barbara for Syrah now. So, um, we spent a day down in Biennacito, right? Yeah. So we've been super fortunate in that we get, um, uh, some of X block, which was the 1987 planted Syrah for Bob Lindquist at Kipe down there. It was like the original Kipe Syrah site and then we also have moved into taking some of what uh, Z block that was planted in 1990 form which is just the most magnificently situated uh, Syrah up on the hill at Biennacito um, all on calcareous soils so like uh, keeps pHs down um, but then we're also working with White Hawk Vineyard which is literally planted in pure dune sand but up at like 1100 feet elevation in cat canyon 
um, which is a really cool site. Um, it was a, it went to Cinequinum for a long time and still goes to like Maggie Harrison at, at Lillian. Um, and uh, then we're also going to be working with a little bit from Thompson Vineyard, which is another historic vineyard in Alisos Canyon. Um, a little bit from a range called Kimsey, which is right on the edge of the Santa Rita Hills and Ballard Canyon AVA with a lot of direct exposure to the, the ocean out there. And then um, hopefully with a little vineyard called uh, Presqu'ile Vineyard, which is uh, also on pure uh, dune sand that's uh, also in Santa Maria. And I mean, th- those areas are cold. I mean, we're picking Biennacito X block typically the last week of October at like 22 and a half bricks. Um, so, I mean, true cool climate. And it's also so nice because we can actually go through Contra Costa, work through our Sonoma County stuff, and then sort of like start thinking about Santa Barbara in the middle of October. So we can kind of turn tanks and like have like a natural workflow rather than just being, you know, I look at some of those wineries that make like 30 Pinot Noirs from Russian River Valley. And it's just like, it's got, it's like nothing, nothing, nothing avalanche, um, which has got to be crazy from just a winery logistics standpoint. Yeah. I think I'm going to see that happen. Yeah. Our, uh, Jamie Kutch is sharing our space with us, and when he moved in, I think he moved awesome. in with like forty-one ton the little open tank, top tanky toes. Yes, yeah, exactly. those are awesome. So, um, so Morgan, um, uh, and then I heard a rumor that you're getting into the Chenin Blanc game. There's a, a rumor that the rumors are true. So we actually um, are working with uh, potentially a little Chenin Blanc from Norgard Vineyard up in, which is close to the Buddha's Dharma Vineyard up on the, um, Talmadge bench, which is cool. That was planted in 1980. It's on AXR and kind of thank God, cause I still think it's going to crop at five tons per acre. Yeah. Um, it must've been at like 10 when it was full, full on. as a vineyard tool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, a, as a bigger <laughs> mitigator. And then the other thing we're really excited about, and this has continued our sort of move into the central coast is we're getting uh, 1971 owner did Shannon Blanc planted at Massa Vineyard in the Carmel Highlands, um, along with some of the 71 planted Cabernet that Ian Brand farms down there. And, um, the Carmel Highlands is stunning. I mean, and th- that is as remote of a vineyard as I, we have ever worked with. I mean, it makes Hirsch feel nearby. Um, so it's, uh, mm. it's pretty cool. Um, and again, you know, picking at, you know, picking in October at, you know, Ian Brand picks his Cabernet, you know, middle of October at like 23 bricks. Um, and it's, you know, and it's fully ripe. It's pretty cool. Um, so, uh, yeah. It's, you know what's what's interesting is um, so I have been getting new vintages on some wines on the wine list, and so whenever I get a twenty and someone orders something, when I bring it to the table, I said, "Hey, you guys, is this the first twenty twenty wine that you've tried?" Yeah, and most of them say yes, and only none of them have talked about smoke. The only I think out of ten people that I mentioned it to, one person at a party of five, one girl said, "Oh yeah, should we be drinking that? That's really young." And I was like, "Perfect." oh, no, that's not why I was asking, but I was just kind of curious. No one has said a peep. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first stuff you're going to be seeing is, you know, whites and rosés and whole cluster press stuff has a much, much lower chance of being smoke affected um, from what we've seen. Uh, Yeah, it's just I think it's going to be interesting on sort of like the collector side. I mean, we've got a lot of people on our mailing list that have, you know, verticals and have a lot of our have a lot of our wine. So it'll be interesting to see what that response is. And I think it's, you know, I think there's going to be, I think when events like this happen, there's a tendency for people to just like not want to talk about it. And I think that 
actually the opposite should happen. I think that we should be very, very, as an industry, very clear about what it is. And, you know, it's a complex issue that we're still trying to find answers to. I mean, like none of us knew what bound glycosides were three years ago. And now we're, you know, flushing all of those out and, you know, and volatile phenols and the, you know, and all that stuff. And we're still trying to figure out exactly how, vines are affected i mean you can be you know what we've seen is you've had vineyards that sat in a haze of smoke in amador county for three weeks but because they're 120 miles from the fires there's no volatile phenols left in that smoke and there's zero smoke effect and then you have a vineyard that may have been five miles from a vineyard that may have had 20 minutes of smoke exposure and that vineyard's completely messed up. So it's, you know, we're just trying to, we're, we're figuring all of that out. And as I said, I mean, we've spent, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars on sending samples to Australia, to multiple labs in British Columbia to basically establish baselines. Nothing more fun than sending a sample of grape juice to British Columbia through DHL and dealing with all of that <laughs> yeah, exactly. stupidity. Oh my God, the amount of paperwork is insane. Um, but no, you know, water samples or food samples. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the fruit samples. The uh, uh, and uh, yeah. So I mean, but also because we really feel like we needed to do that to, and we are also like testing older vintages, so we have something to compare it to. Because the problem is, is we don't have baselines because we know that certain varieties have these compounds naturally in them. So we don't know what the baseline levels are for varieties, or we need to know what the baseline level is for varieties, so then we can establish if there's actually an increase or not. Like right. Saran Petit Saran naturally have, have guillacol in them, which is one of the main markers for smoke. But and doesn't that to me? when I hear that and talk about that um, just reinforces that we don't actually know exactly what is causing the flavors and Mm -hmm. textural effects of, of smoke damage. We just have these markers and the markers and cleaning those markers or change, you know, the treatments for those things probably aren't really what we need to be dealing with anyway. Right. I mean, especially when it comes to Syrah, Petit Syrah, these things that, you know, have five, seven parts per million standard right? yeah, standard gear calling them yeah it's it's really interesting because you know we've done all of this um, research so we can educate ourselves on it and so we know all of these numbers and we've sort of dissected it every which way from you know every every which way we can and at the same time it literally comes down to does it taste good right um, and also, and the main concern just being like, if there's well, high, continue to taste good. Well, it continue to taste good because if you see high bound glycosides, there's a chance that those can basically break down and turn into volatile phenols um, over time. And so then, like a wine could potentially be smoke tainted in ten years. That doesn't taste smoke tainted now. How can you ever deal with that? Well, I mean, <laughs> you just look at the bound glycosides. <laughs> we're going to find out of, over the next yeah, 10 years. And I, yeah, and I guess. But. I mean, we've got lots that we see have higher than we bound glycoside numbers than we want, and we're not releasing it. We're distilling it. We're throwing that we're destroying that wine. I mean, it's just that's what we have to do. And I really, really hope that it's hard, but I really hope that other wineries are going to take similar precautions because it's like, you know, it's like releasing flawed wine into the market is not going to do anybody any favors from a community-wide level um but obviously the financial impetus um is also a hard thing to you know to to balance so my takeaway though even though it was a small sample was that the typical wine consumer isn't really concerned as much as i thought it was but because look at who i'm hanging out with Right. On a daily basis, is people that are twisted about it all the time. Yeah, the yeah, exactly. So. I mean, these people are just coming for the weekend from 
Palo Alto and right. just want to order a bottle of wine. And they, yeah. Whereas, you know, I remember only one experience in like 2010 when someone at a table tried to order a bottle of 08 Pinot from Anderson Valley and one person at the table was like, oh, that's probably got smoke tape. And those wines were messed up. There's some 08s that I had that were, I mean, they were so you beyond. Got some the, sort of history there with a aged wine of something yeah, like and that, I mean, that far. And the nice thing is, is like you can tell, you know, we, you can tell, you know, humans have evolved to detect smoke um, because yeah. we need to run from fires. Um, yeah. And so it's, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, you can definitely sort of see affected wines. What's so interesting about 2020 is all the stuff that's in the, in the gray area. Um, so that's the, what I think you just poured us. Right now what's in the, what's in the shiner in the that we area. just poured here. So this is something that's in the gray area. I think it this might be a, a little bit more on the black than the gray, though. I think so. Yeah. I'm also just so, like, scent. I'm so... Are you talking taint? Yeah. Okay. I don't a, smell a, anything to you, first yeah. off. So, so this is a 2020 Zin from uh, what is now Abbott's Passage. Um, and I did not send it in for numbers because at the time it, the late wait was too long. It wasn't going to make a difference. And, and I've just lived with it. I have one barrel of it, and I have some stuff in kegs. I think I'm now finally going to send it in for numbers just to see where it's at. Um, there's times where I think it's clean. There's times where I taste it. So I don't know. I don't. I don't, I don't taste it. Yeah, it's, I, I smelled it when I poured it, like just sitting here pouring it. And then now that it's in the glass, I don't smell it. When did you pick it? It was... Uh, it, uh, I don't remember the date, but it was before the fire came over the hill. So this was yeah. this was picked pretty early. It was not directly affected from our fire. Um, it was, you know. So everything that we picked from Bedrock, because obviously the same historic property as Abbott's Passage, um, is uh, everything that we picked essentially before the first week of September is clean. Um, is complete is squeaky clean, like among the cleanest numbers that we've seen. We have one block of young vine zin that we picked later that um, we do see higher glycoside numbers on, but that was picked like September 14th. Um, so definitely had some environmental contact. Um, so I would, you know, if it was picked in that sort of last week of August yeah. range, then I think you're probably in pretty good shape based on the the many, many numbers. I can share, and I'm happy to send those to you. Yes. I can share those to, uh, with you. I just, I, I knew we were, I, I knew we were going to go down that window somewhere. So <laughs> yeah, I thought it would. I think it tastes like a uh, uh, banana belt Sonoma Valley Zinfandel. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, that's all right. Yeah, I, I don't smell it now. So I don't know if it was just something in the. Something Maybe it's the uh, it's the bready syrah. <laughs> the bready sitting too close yeah, to yeah, it. Exactly. The Gilles Barge is taking over your over, taking over your world right now. So <laughs> go home and take a shower. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even smell it on this in this bottle, Sam, at all. So yeah, I'm, 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 you know, maybe, and again, I, I'm also and I've talked. I've, I've September twenty first, August twenty first, August twenty first. Yeah. You're, I think you're going to be fine. Um, and I've, t I've talked about this before, but I'm also like, you know, and this is, you know, when, if I'm on Chris's podcast, I start, I'd start crying with this conversation. Um, <laughs> the, the effects of tasting all those smoke tainted 2017s oh. right after the harvest when we're still in like deep, you know, 
traumatic event brain um yes. having been in the middle of it literally you know on the the lines of it um my brain is i i, I know i'm i'm so hyperwired i'm overwired to look for it and to see yeah. it and to and to smell which is one of the things that makes tasting 2020 so hard yeah that uh, i'm uh, even you know you try and go at it from as neutral places you possibly can and you know clear your mind which i'm good although that adds smokiness to things but i'm pretty good at clearing <laughs> my mind i i um tasting 2020s i'm just i'm looking for it so much that i i find it and i don't know you know you put that to a wine drinker at you know somebody who just orders a bottle at the fairmont and is having a great time probably don't you know they're not going to have that same sort of pre-wired brain yeah. for it, you know yeah I, I mean i would say the one thing that i have taken heart in is the one lot that i thought was smoke tainted out of tank ended up being smoke tainted um and so it's sort of like the fact that there's a couple markers in the winery that i know i can taste makes me feel that much more confident in the wines that i know i can't yeah. so because it's like it's almost there so that's really what we've sort of been working off of in some ways in fact for a while i was really freaked out because i was like where's the, where's the smoke tank where's the smoke tank? like where is it like i can't taste it i can't taste it and then well then thinking we, we hit a lot later after it's bottled well, there's, there's that the, the real fear right there's that but luckily we can kind of test for that um but, you know, when we're in the in the winery, it's just sort of like, oh, man, I can't taste it. And that's the most terrifying thing as a winemaker is you're looking for a defect and you can't taste it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that one has it. And you're like, and that actually like made me feel much more confident about all the uh, yeah. other ones that I couldn't because I was like, oh, that one I can taste it. And lo and behold, the lab confirmed, you know, uh, you know, stuff that was well above threshold in those wines. So, yeah, um, yeah it's all it's, it's going to be interesting, though. I will say 2020, you know, even before the fires was kind of an early warm year. So the other thing too is like the wines have some structure. And so like, and one of the things you're concerned about with smoke effect is that some of those glycosides and volatile phenols uh, can sort of manifest as sort of a bitterness and not necessarily as smokiness, but as sort of like a textural bitterness. So it's already, it's challenging because it was already like a year that in particularly Sonoma Valley, we got natural structure here. Um, it's, you know, it was already a year that was kind of going in that direction. So then, of course, my fear is like, well, is this tannin is just being amplified by any smoke effect? But um, but the reality is, is think and thankfully we've gotten very good at testing or Australia has gotten very good at testing for this. Um, it's really just sort of like what I remind myself that this is like, you know, 2008 or you know where it was just like an early year and those wines had a lot of natural structure but they gradually unwound and uh have become really quite nice wines over time so that's my that's my hope <laughs> um so it's uh yeah should we end with hope we should, should we end, we as, should as, end with hope. as our so, profession yeah. of optimism or yeah, whatever exactly will says that Far farming is the profession of optimism um so <laughs> right optimistically farming, farming is uh no it's it's good i mean i we have challenges and there's no doubt that we're going to have continued challenges whether it's from climate evolution and all the other stuff but um you know we also have science and smart people and you know i think that there's also you know i don't ever want to be too doomsday about stuff because you know we have the capacity to adapt and to change and also we know 
ways that we can get better from an industry standpoint for cleaning up our own carbon footprint. And a lot of that starts in our vineyards. So it's like, I think that um, we just have to there keep we looking go. at there it. We so, there we go. There it is. There's, so, the, there's um, the positivity <laughs> and hope. Regenerative thinking. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, people that want to buy Bedrock Wines or Under the Wire Wines? Uh, go to bedrockwineco.com or underthewire.com and um, sign up on the mailing list. We do still sell, you know, you can find our old vine and our Eau de Lulu Rosé and sometimes Bedrock Heritage sort of out in the world and on wine lists um, here at Sonoma Market, Sonoma's Best. Um, but um, for the most part, like by skew, by wine, about like 90% goes straight to our mailing list. So um, that's uh, that's the place to be if you want to get the small the, the, super, the small sure. production stuff. So. Is there... Okay, then we'll talk after we're off here. Well, I, have the, I have the 19 Evangelo on my list, but, oh, I'm, cool. but I'm looking... I would love to have a little under-the-wire presence. We can uh, definitely accommodate that. Okay. So. Joel at what? Once in Future. Joel, no, no, this, Joel, is, this, uh, is, this is a sale. Chris uh, at bedrockwineco.com. Right. Okay, so, so. No, and Joel was great because so. I, I got some Once in Future Merlot. Joel wrote me a card, handwritten uh, card. Thank you. Look at those old uh, fashioned right? manners for buying Merlot. Yeah. yeah, he writes everybody a card who uh, buys Merlot. Yeah. So, you know, all, all five people. Very so. sweet. <laughs> I had a glass of that last week up at Willie's Wine Bar in. Uh, Healdsburg. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, when it was 106 up there. So, yeah. <laughs> you, and, you and Lulu. And, hey, yeah. hey. <laughs> no, I, I will say my dad's in Giacomo Merlot is really good. That vineyard is a very nice Merlot site. It was originally planted for Dave Ramey when he was at Matanzas Creek, and then uh, my dad took it for a long time, and um, Merlot gets a bad rap, man. Yep. Uh, we're actually going to release a Bedrock Vineyard Merlot from 2019, so... You heard it here first. That's actually he, he not almost could, He almost oh. could get that out into the microphone. <laughs> Bedrock <laughs> Vineyard 2019 Merlot. Look for it in an upcoming email. Look, look for it in an upcoming release, <laughs> and we're actually very excited about it. <laughs> and, and, Chris, and Chris is saying, shout it out loud. Shout, yeah, shout it out. out loud, yeah. Um, no, I think... Merlot, it's time for a uh, a reboost yep, on the on the rep for, sure. for Merlot. Yep. Um, it's it seems like it's been put in jail for uh, put in market jail for way too long. So, uh, all right, someone Merlot. wrap it up. That's a wrap. Shoutouts, Brian. So, well, follow if you don't already follow Bedrock Morgan uh, on Instagram and Bedrock Wine Co on Twitter uh, under T Wire or just look for Chris on the, those things also. Uh, that's a worthy follow. I warn you that my Instagram content these days is 50% farming and 50% my son, JP. Right. So if you want some really adorable <laughs> nine-month-old content, it's on there. But if then if you want right. some, you know, carbon sequestration content, it's it, all about, it's right. all we about really have something for everybody. Regeneration so. for the next future. Exactly. The, the, next, the a, next generation. It's very, right? very regenerative just in general. So. <laughs> Uh, old episodes of Winemakers Podcast are online at winemakerspod.com, right, Brian? Uh, you could, All of them. If, after you're done with this one, if you haven't... How many episodes in are you? 190-something, oh, maybe? One, wow. This is 198. Cool. And so you were going... You were probably episode, like, 60, 70 right. the first time when we recorded with you and Chris at the Rhone Room, RIP. Oh. Uh, yeah, seriously. So if you haven't listened to that one, after you're done with this one, go back and... A bunch of the jokes that we made will make more sense. <laughs> yes, that's true. So, <laughs> knowing the backstory. Uh, Is that it, kids? I think that's it. All right. That's it. Thanks for listening. Yeah, absolutely.